Hey, and welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And this is a podcast where we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. You yeah. almost got that in one breath, and I'm so I, proud. I, 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 I thought about trying to go for it, and I really didn't quite make it. <laughs> Mostly because I was also trying to think to myself, do I actually have this memorized? And I don't, but... I thought you for a second, I'm, I probably will. It'll probably be really easy just to rattle that off. <sighs> but we're here. We're here. We're doing it. How are we doing today? I'm doing great. I hope that everybody enjoyed the little bonus episode that we threw your way this week. Uh, we just are really excited that people are actually listening. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. It has been a real treat getting to just hear people's feedback and yeah. We could probably go on too long just thanking people and all that, but I think just a, a, a nice, simple little thank you is probably all we need to say. From us to you. Yeah. Well, uh, first question. Do you have, you don't have any drink? Down I here, do. do I do. do. I got oh. me a little, got me a little soda pop. Oh, got a little soda pop. Little soda okay. pop, little okay. burst of energy before okay. we record. I'm drinking uh, my favorite flavor of LaCroix. Your hairspray water? Yeah, my hairspray water. <laughs> my uh, TV static drink. Yep. <laughs> hint of a hint of the, lemon. The old, <laughs> it's actually a hint of a hint of limoncello. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. that is that is the, the best flavor in my opinion. I'm so I've glad had, that you like it. I do. I do. I became a dad one day. <laughs> that was it? That was it, basically. It might have been the hair and the nose ring. It's like you got, like those things really solidified LaCroix as your drink of choice. <laughs> it's true. I went not only dad, but also hipster. And so hipster dads have to drink LaCroix, right? But you're also not an IPA guy, so. That's true. I'm not really an IPA guy. That might take you out of the running of being hipster dad. That's true. Just but. Midwest emo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love our LaCroix out here. <laughs> we exist, the Midwest oh, emos. Well, uh, do you have, before we get going into our story today, do you have a feel good fact for us? You know, I have a feel good fact. Oh, girl, come on. All right. This is a long story, so I'm just going to do the feel good fact and jump right into it. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So the feel good fact of the day is that cows have best friends. According to a 2014 study done by the University of British Columbia, they determined that calves who lived with a buddy performed tasks better than calves who were housed alone. They were able to discover that cows have a wild amount of personality and that they have a longing it's, that seems very sincere to establish friendship with other cows. Huh. Which is so cute. Cows <laughs> make me so happy. They love having a buddy. Yeah. They want to have a cow buddy. They have little besties. Oh my goodness. They're at their best when they're with their besties. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah me too. Relatable. Relatable. That's how we are. With I'm a each cow other. at heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this one is really long. Uh, we are welcoming feedback, by the way. Uh, we're new. We're trying to kind of establish what a week looks like. And so if you mm. are a fan that this episode is probably going to be crazy long, uh, let us know if you prefer two parts, let us know. So anyway, I'm going to not waste time and jump right into it. All right. So we've done a couple of true crime ish episodes. So I thought it would be a good time now to lean into the sort of mystery side of the podcast. Mm. So today we're going to talk about something that many people have covered across all mediums. We've got podcasts and documentaries and 
uh, fictional recreations uh, because it is fascinating and intriguing and has baffled people for 60 years. <laughs> so today we are going to talk about Diet Love Pass. Ooh. So hold on, Kevbot, because this one is it's a doozy. A doozy. <laughs> a too long of a pause. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Yeah, so I've only ever heard of this story from like... Like, you know, those random like 10 minute YouTube videos that mm -hmm. you run into or like like Netflix, like <laughs> creepy stories. Sure. Creepy pastas on Reddit. Yeah. That kind of stuff. I've mm -hmm. only ever. Heard, yeah. R slash no sleep. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so I, I can only like remember bits and pieces of this story. Um, but unlike other stories that you've told me where I have known nothing, I have at least a little bit of an understanding of this story. Yeah. But I'm sure you're about to blow my mind with a lot of things I've never heard of before. I sure hope so. I, I hope so. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's go. So in 1959, a group of 10 hikers led by Ural Polytechnical Institute engineering student Igor Dyatlov assembled <laughs> and planned for a pretty big expedition. The group was made up of eight men and two women who were peers and fellow students or alumni alongside Igor Dyatlov at UPI. So there is a temptation with stories like these to sort of forget the fact that we're talking about actual humans, mm -hmm. like the intrigue and mystery sometimes kind of overcasts the actual people. So I did want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about the individual hikers that comprise the group. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start with Igor Dyatlov. So he was 23 years old. He was a gifted engineering student at UPI, and his focus was in radio engineering. He was known by friends as a man who was called by the mountains. And when they called, he answered. <laughs> um, he was an experienced and enthusiastic hiker, and he had a thirst for adventure. The whole incident that I'm going to share is obviously named after him. Hmm. Next, we have Alexander Kolevitov. He was a 24-year-old physics student with a special interest in nuclear physics. He had a rough childhood growing up through the war, and he was part of a large family. Hmm. He had five siblings, one of whom who had passed away very young. Um, his real saving grace was that he had extremely high work ethic. He got a great education, and he had a ton of work experience in his field. Hmm. Next, we've got Rustam Slobodin, who was 23 years old and had graduated from UPI the year prior to the expedition with a degree in mechanical engineering. Hmm. He was strong and athletic and loved to take risks, despite being pretty soft-spoken. So there are three Yuris. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to Rattle them off quickly. So Yuri Yudin was 21 years old at the time of the expedition. He was an economics student with a special focus on geology. He would be the only survivor of the incident, which I will explain more about that later. Mm. Yuri Krivenenshenko was 23 years old and was Igor Dyatlov's longtime friend and partner on many a rugged expedition. Mm, this fun. guy sounds like he was a blast. Yeah. He was a construction and hydraulic student, and he graduated from UPI two years before the expedition. By all accounts, he was the joker of the group. He would unfortunately pass away just days before turning 24. Oh, wow. I know, it's sad. The last Yuri was Yuri Doroshenko. 
So he was 21 years old and he was a radio engineering student. He had a reputation for also being a risk taker and he was known to be impulsive. I saw a story that claims that he once scared off a bear on a camping trip with a hammer. So <laughs> sounds like a risk taker yes. that definitely yes. would De- yes. fall in that category. <laughs> At least a risk taker. At the very least, he was a risk taker. <laughs> Uh, so next we have Nikolai Fibo Brignol. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, he was a 23-year-old graduate of UPI who had majored in civil engineering. He was sort of the popular guy of the group. Mm-hmm. He'd been very involved in different sports clubs at the university. The last of the men in the group was 38-year-old Simeon, or I've also seen Sasha Zolotaryov. I am really shooting for the stars with these names. Those are great. Really trying my best here. Your Russian is incredible right now. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm trying. It's probably not. (laughs) So Sasha Simon Zolotaryov had joined the group to gain his master's certificate in ski instruction. The women on the trip were 22 year old Zinaida Kolmogorova. That was botch. Sorry. She was referred to as the engine of the university. She kind of had a hand in everything that went on there. Everybody Hmm. knew her. Everybody loved Mm -hmm. her. She was great. She was bold, energetic, and brave. Once on a hike, she'd been bitten by a venomous snake, and she actually pushed through uh, to avoid causing any delays for the rest of the group. She sounded like a rock star. Yeah. (laughs) She was awesome. The last woman was also the youngest person on the trip. Uh, she was 20-year-old engineering and economics student Ludmilla Dibanina. According to those who knew her, Dibanina was wise, brave, and thoughtful. She had led a few treks of her own and even survived getting accidentally shot in the leg while on a hike. Wow. She navigated it like a champ and got everybody back to their starting destination safely. Oh, my goodness. So all of these people, I hope what you've gathered from that is none of these people are chumps. Right. These people are experienced hikers who can handle a crisis. They're smart. They're talented. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like they, they're not only well-educated, but they're all very active Mm -hmm. and, and willing to kind of go do something that's a little bit crazy. Yeah. Um, they're not just kind of adventurous. Yeah. Yeah. They're not just getting an A in their class, sitting behind a computer, you know, making it work, you know, the best, I mean, granted it was, what year was this? 1959. So the computers weren't an option. (laughs) Either way, like even just getting the grades that they got and the the degrees that they got were huge accomplishments. But on top of that, they were like accomplished explorers, basically. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, they all rocked. So I don't expect you to remember those names off the top of your head, but I did want to chat a little bit about each of them and kind of lay the groundwork, like I said, to demonstrate these people are not hacks. Yeah. And I definitely will not remember any of those names. I've already forgotten all of them. I'm pretty sure. Well, I will, for the most part, (laughs) refer to them by their last names for the rest of the show, just to keep it easy on myself. Yeah. Even though the last names are harder than the first names (laughs) in most cases, it just feels easier. So, okay. The expedition that they were planning to take was through the Ural Mountains in northern Russia, and the goal was to achieve what was the highest hiking certification in the Soviet Union at the time, which was a grade three certification. So in order to get this certification, they would need to complete a 190 mile route. This route, so there's been some discrepancies uh, on how long the distance is, but I'm going with what I saw the most. I don't know if that includes Hmm. travel that took place from train and that, that sort of stuff. But that's what I read. 190 miles. Yeah. 
So the group, not being rookies in any sense, went through all the proper channels to establish a route that was then approved by all of the proper people. Okay. They knew that it would be challenging, but they were prepared for it. Wow. Yeah. So on January 23rd, 1959, the group began their trek by train. It took them several days of travel to even get to the place where they would be hiking. During this time and through chunks of the journey, the crew took lots of pictures and wrote journals. They sent notes and postcards to their loved ones. They slept in train stations or with friends who lived along the way and even accepted some help navigating from a local indigenous group known as the Monsi people. At some point in the first few days of travel, one of the hikers, Yuri Yudin, who had some underlying health issues, decided to turn back a day or two into the expedition while the group was staying in this little village near the mountain range because he was experiencing some complications that Mm. would have made this already extremely difficult route pretty much impossible for him to complete. Right. So lucky for that guy. Just going to throw that out there. (laughs) You will agree with me by the end of this if you've never heard this story. So the rest of the group continued their travel so they could officially begin the arduous journey towards the peak of Mount Otorten, which is a mountain in the Ural Mountain Range, or the Urals for short. Their end goal was to reach the top of Mount Otorten, otherwise referred to as Dead Mountain. Oh. Or as the Muncie people called it, Don't Go There. <laughs> there's a book, there's a book actually called Don't Go There that I'll link that is phenomenal about this story. So they, they would actually, is that like what, what the t- title translated From to English is? From everything I've seen, it, that's what they've nicknamed it. I, I could be wrong and that could just be... Like some lore surrounding the story, but very interesting name. On January 26th, uh, 1959, the group had arrived at their final stop before beginning the hike where they would send their final communications to their loved ones and made a few stops in the area to kind of explore and make sure that they had everything in place to begin their journey on foot. Hmm. It was here that Dyatlov sent his final postcards to home, letting people know that he would send another one on February 12th at the end of the expedition. That would be a postcard he would never send. Hmm. On January 28th, the group took off from the second northern settlement where they'd been staying to begin what would become their last journey. As far as we can see from journal entries and photos taken by the group, everything started off without a hitch. They made it about six miles into the trip before setting up camp for the night around 5.30 p.m. In the different journals that the hikers had written, they'd written down thoughts and questions. And one of them that really stood out to me was, what awaits us on this trip? Also, what will we encounter? Which seems really sweet and Hmm. hopeful and excited. Right. But is like ominous knowing <laughs> what we're going to learn. It, it would be, it's, it's almost cliche to write something like that mm-hmm. now, now. Uh, and it's a completely different scenario with this story. Totally. It like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I got a lot of my information from the dietlovepass.com website. Uh, you can actually look through transcripts of the journals and actual photos of the journals. You can see photos of the members of the group that they'd taken before and during the expedition and plenty of other things that will demonstrate the point that these really were just regular old 20-somethings with a passion to explore and to blaze a trail. Hmm. You'll see photos of happy faces, journal entries. Uh, One of my favorites was an entry from one of the women. I believe it was Dubonina. She was wondering if the boys will have enough willpower to get through the trip without any cigarettes because... (laughs) They'd promised the girls that they wouldn't smoke on the trip. Wow. <laughs> Once again, it just feels so human. Yeah. And so normal, you know. Yeah. One other thing that I loved was that they made their own little pretend newspaper that they called the Evening O'Torton. 
And it had like sections in it, like a love section and a education and a humor section. Oh, funny. Which was cute. Yeah. I'll tell you, there's one particular entry in there that will give you the stress sweats. I'll tell you about that one later. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm trying to lay out a simple timeline as best as I can here. I'm trying not to spend too much time on it. I'm going to be kind of casual about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So on January 29th, day two, the group worked to carve out a trail stopping about every 70 minutes, which would equate to one stop every mile or mile and a half. Okay. They stopped for lunch after the fourth stop near the uh, Ospia River, where they saw members of the local Monsi tribe pass from time to time. The Monsi people, I didn't write this down, but the Monsi people would also help them navigate certain parts of their trip. So they hmm. seem to have had a pretty good relationship with them. They camped out near a tributary for the night and also celebrated one member of the team's birthdays. Yuri Dorinchenko turned 21 that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For the next couple of days, they kept a similar pace as they had for the first two days. The team members who chose to keep journals all noted that the weather started out cold but bearable, but as the days went on and they moved further into their expedition, weather began to take a turn. Ooh. It started getting cold, like Cold, cold. Like what you expect in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe in Everyone the Siberian in, wilderness yeah. might be cold. Yeah. Well, it was like 11 degrees during the day. Or sorry. It was like negative 11 degrees oh. during the day and into the negative 20s at night. <sighs> On top of that, walking became increasingly difficult as they were obviously being affected by the elements, even with the proper gear. Right. It began snowing heavily and the oh. wind was blowing pretty strong which messed with visibility. And so they seemed to be having a hard time finding the trail that they were supposed to be on. Shoot. Yeah. There are some discrepancies about the events of January 30th through February 2nd, but I can sum it up pretty simply. With the cold and snowy conditions, they did their best to trudge ahead, but had to make frequent stops and had to fight pretty hard to keep up the team morale. Hmm. On these stops, they'd make use of the stove that was brought along so they could warm themselves inside the tent. At some point, they realized that due to bad weather conditions, they'd gotten slightly off course. So they decided to set up camp on the slope of a mountain, mm -hmm. which I learned is a no-no. Like you don't want to set up right underneath a slope in case like snow falls down or oh, anything like that. Yeah. They also, because it was getting so cold and so snowy, they began burning articles of clothing to stay warm, like mittens and things like that to stay warm. So we're going to skip ahead a smidge. It's February 12th. Okay. If you remember a couple minutes ago, I said that Dietlov had said that he would send some sort of correspondence on February 12th, which was his rough estimate of when their journey would end. Yeah. Given the nature of an expedition like this one, though, nobody was really all that panicked when no correspondence came in on that day. Right. Hikes like this can and often do take a turn here or a dip there that can delay things. So at first, nobody was really worried about it. By February 21st, almost mm. a whole month since the group had set off by train to begin their journey, an official search party was launched that consisted of volunteers from the university. By the following day, Monsi hunters, police, and military forces had also joined to aid in the search. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it very quickly picked up steam. On February 26th, the search party came upon the past that remains infamous even to this very day. What they saw initially was a seemingly abandoned campsite. Oh, wow. Okay, so right here, this is this is all background up to the famous part of the story. Yes. Is what we've gotten so far. Yes. And so I don't know how commonly this story is told to people, but I feel like all this background just gave me way more color into 
like the bits of the story that I've heard. Like, sure. I thanks, babe. That's to, nice to know. Yeah. And that's not, not just a compliment. I'm actually saying this for. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't giving you a yeah. compliment, woman. <laughs> yeah. It was not just a compliment. Yes, yes, yes. I'm joking. But it, it, it tells me a whole lot about not only the value of who these people were because they were, you know, very educated and becoming educated college students that people cared a lot about and wanted to see succeed. And, you know, it's, it's, that's like the heartbeat of why why we're talking about these stories or the way that we do is to know the background and the human level of this story. That, yeah. Yeah. Right now, I am way more interested in this story now than I have ever before because I feel like I'm actually like involved in this now. <laughs> good. Good. Yeah. I really I really love true crime and mystery and all that kind of stuff. But I think that something that is is easy to miss is that these are you know, real people yeah. with real stories who like, there was actually a timeline of events that led up to things. Yeah. There are a lot of great communicators who acknowledge that and a, great, a lot of great podcasters and stuff that I follow that have done a great job covering this story. But I feel like, yeah, I just wanted to take a couple of extra minutes. It's worth the extra length, I feel like, to get into detail about yeah. all that sort of stuff. So I'm glad it helped you. But all right, I'm about to get into descriptions that are pretty graphic. So if that's not your thing, it will not hurt my feelings if you move along. So we're going to zoom into the discovery of the campsite. The first thing that rescuers noticed was that the tent had been slashed open from the inside. Like oh. these experienced wilderness hikers not only left in a hurry, but they were obviously terrified of something if they couldn't even take the time to unzip the tent. Right. They, I mean, they slashed it or clawed it open with something sharp instead. They found many of the hikers' belongings in the tent as well, meaning they abandoned a bunch of their stuff and just wow. took off. They noticed uh, around eight or nine sets of footprints in the snow. All of them were barefoot or only wearing socks. And one set of footprints showed that one person was wearing one shoe. And this is negative 20 degree weather. Yes. Oh my goodness. I get like uncomfortable in like 50, <laughs> positive 50. It's <laughs> <laughs> getting a little brisk out here. Yeah. <laughs> so what on earth could have caused these people to be so terrified that they ran for their lives into the Siberian wilderness as if that was better than being in their tents. So since the tracks were still somewhat visible when investigators arrived, the group followed the tracks for about a mile when they got to the edge of a forested area. It was here beneath a cedar tree that they discovered the first two bodies. Oh, wow. Laying side by side, shoeless, and in their underwear were the bodies of Dorinshenko and Krivenenshenko. There were also the remains of a small fire. So these guys had ran out into the frigid cold, nearly naked, stopped to make a fire that required them to cut down branches from nearby trees, meaning they had to have been in that spot for a minute Yeah. to pull that off. Yeah. They didn't go back to get any of their stuff, or they didn't go seek refuge in their tents. It's just a little bit, little bit strange. Wow. Investigators also noticed that up to around 15 feet into the large cedar tree where the bodies had been found, like beneath it, there were broken branches and scratch marks indicating that someone had definitely scaled this tree. So either one or both of them. They also discovered trace amounts of skin and blood in the bark of the tree. So again, mm. what the heck were they so freaked out about? Yeah, It wasn't like a casual climb up a tree. They were like scratching Panicking. to get up this yeah. tree. It did appear that they'd cut some of the higher branches away towards the top of the tree to form a sort of like lookout spot mm -hmm. because that part of the tree was facing the camp. Oh, so it appears that they climbed up there to go like, see what was going on back. Yeah. At the camp. 
So yeah, interesting. And so their their bodies were found. Well, you know what? I'm sure you're going to get to this. I was, uh, actually, that's yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah. getting to next. So we're going to talk about the condition of the first two bodies. Yeah. Doran Shanko was described as having a purplish brown complexion. He had burns on the side of his head. He had blood on his nose, mouth, and ears. He had bruises and abrasions all over almost his entire body, including his arms and legs, most of which the coroner described as self-inflicted. He had a foamy, mm. discolored like grayish discharge coming out of his mouth that was smeared across his cheek, which a coroner would later describe as only possible with an extreme amount of internal pressure on his chest. The coroner also noted that the way that lividity had set in, it was not consistent with how he was positioned. So lividity is basically the way that your blood settles after you die. Mm. And so if you're laying on your back, your blood's going to settle there. Right. So lividity settling with this guy in a way that he was not positioned in means that he had to have been moved after he died. Oh, they, some people think that it could have been, you know, their friends had removed their clothes because it was cold. Yeah. And they're like, they're dead. They don't need their clothes. We're going to take them. Let's move them. And the way that they were positioned mm. side by side also indicated like a level of respect. Yeah. Uh, because they were near each other. They were on their backs. There seemed to be like a degree of respect. So yeah, at first, when I read that, I was like, that's sketchy. But then I was like, well, maybe it's not, though. Yeah, yeah. Maybe friends just tried to take care of them. So his official cause of death was hypothermia. Hmm. Okay. So Kriven and Shenko was laying nearby. His injuries were also puzzling. <laughs> he had bruises across his head. I believe that they also determined that he had brain bleeding. So this is gross, but he had skin missing from the back of his hands. And that skin was found in his mouth and in between his teeth. He had what? bruises and abrasions once again, all over his body. And he also had shallow lesions on his left hip and left thigh. He also suffered burns on his left leg, foot and toes. His cause of death, hypothermia. Hmm. Seems a little weird. So the coroner made a note that they believe that these two had frozen to death before the other friends had died. Kind of what I was alluding to before. Yeah. They believe their friends laid them respectfully side by side. And then they used their clothes to keep warm. Yeah. So Kriven and Shenko, this, this is one thing that I wanted to make sure I included. Kriven and Shenko's clothing tested positive for high levels of radiation. Hmm. Which is weird. We'll that talk more weird. about that later. Because he is not the only one with radiation on his clothes. So a lot of people wow. do write off radiation on specifically on Kriven and Shenko because two years prior to the incident, he actually worked at a plutonium processing plant that had a nuclear accident. Hmm. But okay. even with that, it would be pretty reckless and would probably have to be against like every policy <laughs> ever to let a guy who's been exposed to nuclear radiation just go home in those same clothes and wear right. them. Right. And it would also be very strange for radiation levels to stick around for that long. I feel like, I mean, I guess I could be wrong. I'm not a nuclear scientist, but sure. I think radiation levels do like you think about, uh, uh, Hiroshima mm -hmm. still has incredibly high radiation levels. That's true. After 80 years or however long it's been. Right. So I, it's not that crazy to think that he still carries radiation around on him, but it is strange that I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it is strange that his clothes would still have it or that he would still be carrying it. If that was the cause, I feel like the, like the more strange thing in that is that they would let him out of the facility in those clothes. Like they yeah, would have would to have odd. some sort of like disposal process for 
nuclear accidents, you would think. Yeah. I don't know, but hmm. one one would think. But I digress. So a little a little down the way from these two bodies, they found three more bodies. One interesting thing about the position of these bodies is that they were sort of like equidistant to one another. And it appeared that they'd all been attempting to make their way back to the campsite because they were all facing that direction. Hmm. The three bodies belong to Dyatlov, Slobodin, and Koloma Gorova. So we're going to start with Dyatlov. They found him on his back in the snow with his arms up and his fists clenched, clutching a branch in one hand and with his other hand across his face, sort of like he was shielding himself from something. There were some oddities about Diet Loft mm. that they noticed right away. First of all, he's an experienced hiker, as I've over-explained, but his jacket was unbuttoned. They found that to be pretty unexplainable. Like, why would he be doing that? Right. It's negative 20. <laughs> yeah. It's, and he would know better. Yeah. He also had one bare foot and one foot that had two socks on it. <laughs> so, like, layering the socks makes sense, but yeah. why would you only have two socks on one foot and zero socks on the other right, foot. Right. He had minor abrasions on his forehead, eyelids and cheeks. And there was blood on his lips. He had a small dark red or he had small dark red cuts on his arms. He had bruised knees and ankles with signs of hemorrhaging. Although he had no internal injuries, he had injuries on his hands that were consistent with hand to hand combat. Oh. He also had a four centimeter by two centimeter incision on his tibia. Some people have described oh. it as like almost surgical. Yeah. Other people have described it as more of like a, like a gouge or, or lacking the word, but I think you get what I mean. Like the, yes. Stabbed clean through. Yeah. He also had a photo of uh Kolmogorova on him who he was actually dating at the time. Oh, just sad. His cause of death, hypothermia. Next we'll talk about Kolmogorova. That's the name I have the hardest time with. She was found on her side, fully clothed, except for the fact that she was only wearing socks on her feet. She had abrasions all over her face, including her cheek, nose, and a dark abrasion on one of her eyelids. She had abrasions on her hands, which could once again be considered defensive wounds. And she had skin missing on the backs of her left hand and the third finger of her left hand as well. The most baffling of her injuries was a large, dark bruise on her left side, which the coroner note appeared, said that it appeared as though she was like beaten in the side with a baton or like a blunt object. Oh. Her cause of death was hypothermia due to a violent accident. Hmm. Slightly different from the other ones. So the final person in this group was Slobodin. Slobodin was found face down in the snow. He had abrasions on his face as well as bruising and hemorrhaging on his right eye. His lips were swollen. He was the best clothed of the group so far. Once again, minus the fact that his feet had four pairs of socks on and the other one had, I think, two pairs of socks or an undisclosed amount of socks yeah. and a hiking boot. He had wounds on his wrists, hands, and knuckles that were consistent with hand-to-hand -hand combat, and the skin of his right forearm was missing. He had minor bruising on his legs as well. The most notable of his injuries was a massive skull fracture. Not mm. only was it deep, but it was nearly seven inches long. They believe, this is really sad, they believe this injury did not kill him, but that it did render him stunned. So mm. he would be like, like immobile, unable yeah. to move. Like he would lose his yeah, faculties. Potentially lose consciousness or, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so pretty defenseless with a wound like that. So along with this fracture, he had bruises on his temporalis muscles, which are near the temple. Mm -hmm. And the injury was consistent with blunt force trauma. 
His cause of death was hypothermia. Wow. All right. So a huge bummer. But because of the conditions on the mountain, the searchers and investigators actually had to wait to retrieve the other bodies until the snow and ice had thawed a little bit. Oh. So we're going to fast forward to May 4th, almost two months after the incident. Yeah. So real quick, let's pause looking at these <clears throat> these few just so, far. so I can get my head around all this. I'm sure any listeners also, you know, especially if you're not familiar with Russian names. <laughs> so, so there's the two Yuris that are naked, basically, sitting under the, the tree. And they've been laid respectfully potentially just had their clothes stripped because there's no need for them. Mm -hmm. And then the other three are walking away from that back towards the camp when they get attacked or, or get into a fight with each other or something crazy happens where they all three end up hurt also. Right. Going, trying to go back to the camp. That's so interesting to me that they were trying to go back to their camp and then they both, or they all three are found facing are they all face down i think no diet lava's facing up kolmor garova was found on her side and slobodin he was found face down so we have diet lav face up kolmor garova on her side and slobodin on his face like face down okay interesting yeah and they're all headed that same direction so there's the picture that i'm seeing of all this is very uh it's just very odd to think about it this way. Mm -hmm. Like there's some people who have been taken one place. These people were all of a sudden dead and all of them, all five of them so far were officially deemed dead by hypothermia or a hypothermia due to a violent accident. Right. But it could be, I mean, it sounds like it could be explained for any of them. They right. all had a violent accident at some point. Right. People missing skin, people skin in their in, mouths. Yeah, skin in their mouths, blood in random places, hair yeah. like it's Burns. very yeah, it's very odd. And I mean, to be fair, they were on a a, a trek through the Russian wilderness. Like Right, that's no joke. They're gonna get bruises and you know, little cuts here and there, whatever, just you know, potentially getting burned by a fire at some point just because Stuff's going to happen. So it, it's very interesting to me, though, just to think about the degree of their injuries and how many they have up to this point. Just seems really odd. A so. lot of people do believe that the coroners uh, either redacted information or were forced to exclude certain information. Oh, We'll talk more about that after we get through the autopsies. OK, OK. So what I'm going through now is kind of this is how they were found and the autopsies yeah. just for sure. little little additional context. OK, so we're going to fast forward to May 4th when they went back two months later. OK, so they investigators were able to go and retrieve the four remaining bodies by May 5th. The last four members of the hiking crew were found in kind of like a ravine about 250 feet away from the tree where the bodies of Doroshenko and Krivenenshenko were found. So they were not far away. Hmm. Everything from this point is about to get pretty weird and gross. Okay. So my apologies in advance, but you've been warned <laughs> to consider yourself warned. None of the remaining members of the group have their cause of death as listed as hypothermia. So buckle up because these ones are brutal. Hmm. They were all very well clothed, especially compared with other members of the group. They had dug themselves into a sort of den into the ground and then placed branches 
along like the walls of mm. the perimeter of the walls of the den that they made to kind of insulate themselves from the elements. And they had also made a small fire. It's noted in the autopsies and in separate notes involving the investigation that they do believe that the den had actually been pretty effective mm. at keeping them warm, at least for a period of time. Right. So we're going to start with the name that's one really hard for me to say. It is <laughs> Zolotaryov. So his autopsy revealed some weird injuries. He was missing his eyes. Oh. As well as the soft tissue above his left eye, like where his eyebrow would have been. There was exposed bone there too. What? Yeah, he had an injury to the backside of his head, uh, like a wound with exposed bone there as well. He had ribs two, three, four, five, and six, all broken. And each rib that was broken was broken in two spots. Oh. No external injuries in this area. So no soft tissue damage, no cuts, no bruises, just broken ribs. Just broken rib. In two places. Weird. So 12 breaks, How? or sorry, 10 breaks. Yeah. Nuts. How would you get broken ribs without a bruise? Well, we'll okay. see. We just <laughs> stay buckled in, Kev okay. So his cause of death was listed as a violent accident. Another thing that's worth mentioning here is that Zolotaryov had sev several items with him, the most notable being a camera around his neck and a notepad. But unfortunately, it's reported that the camera had water damage, which made all of the footage useless. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb here <laughs> and say baloney. I think there's something on that footage uh, from that specific camera that we're not supposed to see. It's my opinion, but I had to say it. Yeah. Because... Do you remember how I told you about Yuri Yudin, the guy who'd left early? Yeah. So he was very familiar with all of the inventory. They were all very familiar with the inventory. Yeah. Nobody knew about this camera. Yuri didn't know about this camera. Hmm. And everybody also points out that it's extremely weird that of the things that he either he went back and grabbed or the things that he already had with him when they fled the campsite, he had this camera. So what was right. he taking pictures of? Right. They also found a, a pen and notepad on the scene with him and the colonel who had been investigating on the scene. I'm not even going to try and say his name. He's the one who actually found the notepad. He claimed there was nothing written on it, but he never admitted it into evidence. Ah, oh, darn. There's nothing here. Didn't put it into evidence. Hmm. They put a pack of matches into evidence. Right. But they didn't put this into evidence. It just seems sketchy. That, really, that is really sketchy. Like, Having a notepad and a pen with him feels like it would have been notable enough to put into evidence. Right. Well, these are people who they are educated. I mean, they're there in large part to document their experience. Right. Like, it's just so natural for them to grab a notepad and a pen and write down whatever they're thinking, whatever they're seeing. So the fact that it's empty either says he was killed before he could write anything on it, which just seems a little bit unreasonable. They, they had, had enough time, time to, to dig a, a den yeah, and like, make a fire yeah, and potentially go back to the campsite. Also, they probably knew at this point that some of their friends were dead. Yeah. You would think that they would write that stuff down. Right. They'd written so many things down up until this point. You can actually go to that website. I'll link it, the Diet Love Pass website. You can see all of their journal entries, tons and tons of photos. It's, it's wild, but you see they were very dedicated at keeping their journals. Yeah. So it, it seems... Strange it's that that was the strange. one thing that never got admitted into evidence. People knew about it, but never mm. got admitted into evidence. So, okay, let's keep moving. Yeah. We're going to talk next about Dubonina. Her injuries were equally as puzzling. 
she, like the guy I just mentioned, was missing her eyes. She was also missing her tongue, but it had been like removed completely, including the muscles on the floor of her mouth, like oh. down, down to like the very root of her tongue. Mm. It's noted that there was around 100 grams of what they believe to be coagulated blood in her stomach as well, which implies that she was alive that, at the time that her tongue was ripped out. Oh my gosh. And she most likely died of... Of like, you know, she swallowed all that before she died. Right. Very sad. So she had massive soft tissue damage around both eye sockets and her nose. And her nose had been so badly broken that it was flat. Her upper lip was removed, which left her mouth and teeth exposed. On the right side of her body, ribs two, three, four, and five were each broken, each in two different places. On the left side, ribs two, three, four, five, six, and seven were all broken, each in two places as well. She had a large bruise on her thigh and also major hemorrhaging in her right atrium of her heart. She was also pretty well dressed like the guy before her. Uh, even without her shoes, she used one of her sweaters. She'd cut it up into multiple pieces and kind of made little makeshift shoes to keep her feet warm. Mm. But her death was also listed as a violent accident. So we just got to talk about some similarities that we're seeing between these two bodies real quick. Right. It is strange that each of these two people who are different heights, different weights, suffered nearly identical injuries that are consistent with some sort of like major trauma. Yeah. Right? That's weird. That is weird. They both suffered from broken ribs in two places on each broken rib, and they were both missing their eyes. The autopsy says that since these two were different heights and different sizes, it seems pretty unlikely that they suffered these injuries in a single event together. Right. Like if they'd been standing side by side and like something smacked into them, it wouldn't make sense that they'd have identical injuries because right. her head's up to his shoulders, you know? Right. Hmm. It's very, very weird. Well, and you you don't just have your tongue suddenly <clears throat> pulled out of your throat very easily. Right. That's, that's gruesome. Very gruesome. Well, and the fact that there was blood in her stomach, meaning that she was alive. Yeah. Pretty much eliminates, you know, animals coming after she had Right. Passed and had just been like munching on her body. Right. It's very weird. That is so strange. It's very, 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 very weird. Taking into account that both of these people were in super good shape and they were experienced hikers. Hmm. Whatever it was that did cause these injuries had to have been pretty like severe. Yeah. It's believed that Dubonina likely died within 10 to 20 minutes of the trauma and that Zolotaryov likely lived longer as his internal hemorrhaging was not as severe. Hmm. So we're almost through the woods on me going a little too deep <laughs> into the <laughs> autopsy findings. But alas, I must I must do this. <laughs> so I think it's important, actually, to yeah. walk through each of yeah. these and discuss them to some extent, because getting as full of a picture as we can so we can actually try and piece together what the heck happened here, right. I think, right. is valid. So we're going to talk about the autopsy that was done on Alexander Kolevitov. So like the others found in the den, he was pretty well-dressed, all things considered. There were a few interesting things about his clothes, however. His jacket was left open, like Dyatlov's, and there were burns, or at least a burn, on his outermost jacket. Hmm. There were parts of his clothing that tested positive for radiation. Interesting. Call me naive, but since when has radiation testing been like standard practice in an autopsy? Isn't that something you feel like? I could be wrong on this. I don't work in the autopsy field. Yeah. But since when are we demanding radiation testing? I have no idea. 
That, that, is, that feels like something that would need to be special ordered. That is a very odd request, unless there's something that just exists on that mountain. But I feel like you would have run into that in your researching for this. <laughs> I feel like I would have too. And I, I didn't see anything. I could have missed it, but I didn't see anything about any of the other ones having radiation on their clothing. Yeah. But like it didn't say tested negative for radiation either. So hmm. it's very weird. It's just, I don't know, it's just, that, that one's been bugging me. But all right, his injuries included the lack of soft tissue around the eyebrow area, leaving parts of his skull exposed, and unusual breaks in the cartilage and base of his nose, like where his nostrils were, was completely flattened. Oh, weird. This doesn't necessarily mean that his nose was broken, but he'd endured at least some level of trauma to have his nose kind of be disfigured in that way. Yeah. It's noted that he had also a deformed neck. Uh, it's believed mm. that these injuries could indicate anything from some kind of fight to exposure to the elements or to what many people have called, quote, an event caused by special forces. So basically anything could have happened. <laughs> <laughs> There's not really any way to yeah. narrow this down, apparently. I, I like how they use the term caused by special forces. Like, could have been a ghost. Could have been <laughs> right. Like, could have been could have military. And yeah. Could have been anything in between. <clears throat> right. He had an injury with bleeding behind the knee. He had whitening on the skin of his hands and feet, which is consistent with putrefaction from being in a wet environment. And it's also noted that his skin was overall, quote, gray green with a tinge of purple. Hmm. Mm. The tinge of purple. That's very like specific. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, and I, I would anticipate some blue purple coloring when you're in that kind of cold all the time. Right. So I don't know what to say about that. I know I, I was debating if I was going to include that, but the ones that stood out to me as something like beyond frostbite and like things that would be expected from being in the elements and like decomposing in the elements. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I just, I'm going to go ahead and include it. So it could mean literally just the weather, but, or like basic decomposition stuff. But I thought it was at least worth saying because that one stood out to me. The gray yeah. green with a tinge of purple stood yeah. out to me. The last hiker is next and then we'll move on to theories. The last one that we're going to be talking about is Nikolai Thibo Brignol. I'm going to refer to him as Nikolai. Just yes, that's understandable. <laughs> keep it easy on myself. <laughs> okay, so he had bruising on his upper lip, hemorrhaging on his lower forearm, and an extremely baffling head injury. He had multiple fractures to the temporal bone that extended into his frontal and sphenoid bone. So to make it simple, yeah. he had multiple devastating fractures to the side of his head that kind of extended and wrapped towards the front of his skull. The weird part was that he appeared to have no soft tissue damage, meaning that the bones were fractured, but the skin was intact. So no cuts, no, yeah. Kind of like the rib, yeah. the rib thing yeah. with the other two. Uh, a type of injury like this is considered to be consistent with being hit by a car. What on earth happened to poor Nikolai? What? It's believed that at the very least, this injury caused a significant concussion that would have made it next to impossible for him to have moved at all. So any movements made after the injury would have had to have been made by somebody else, like on his behalf. Right. So Grabbing like somebody him, would have carrying had to him. Drag him, carry him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I know there was a lot. <laughs> wow. I know it was, but let's go ahead and move into theories. Okay. Looking into this, there's an exhausting amount of theories. Like I get, I got tired reading the list of 
some of the theories, <laughs> just yeah. the list. So there are people from all over the world with all kinds of specialties of study and levels of professionalism in like different fields that have weighed in on or even tested out their theories. There are also plenty of people like you or me who have looked into it and just have gone with whatever they think makes the most sense. Sure. <laughs> there are so many theories. I, for real, could just make a whole episode of theories. I, uh, we were joking earlier that I could do like a 10-part mini <laughs> podcast that was just dialogue past. Just this. There's so much this information. Whole story, yeah. It is bizarre. So, okay, we're going, I'm, I'm just going to pick a couple and I encourage anybody who wants to look at any more of them just to go look because there's a lot of them. <laughs> All right, so here's the first theory. Don't laugh at me that I'm starting off strong, but this is one of the many popular theories and it is related to extraterrestrials. Okay. Don't write it off just yet, Kevbot. <laughs> During the time that the adventurers had yet to be found, it's documented that geologists a mile or so away from the Ural Mountains saw glowing pulsating orbs in the sky near the mountains. There are also other reports from the Monsi people people who were in the mountains during search and rescue, mm -hmm. local military, and other witnesses that say they saw the same lights and they all describe them in the exact same way. Sightings of these lights were reported from January through March of that year. January, February, March. What? Tons of reports coming in about these glowing, pulsating orbs. Oh, I just got goosebumps. That's creepy. Isn't that creepy? Like, what yeah. is that? So the rescuers that were on the mountain during one of the sightings of the orbs were completely terrified. You actually can read direct statements from them, but I'm just going to sum them up. I didn't, I didn't write them all out. Sure. So they saw the orb. They watched the orb kind of move around and do its thing for about 20 or so minutes. Long time. Wow. It wasn't just something that they saw in a split second and moved on. Right. They were all super freaked out. <laughs> Many, if not all believed like with their whole hearts that these somehow had to be involved in whatever happened to these kids. Wow. Like they were all hit with this like certainty. This has to be connected somehow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very strange. One of the lead investigators and his partner, uh, the investigator's last name was Ivanov. I did not write down the name of his partner, but they actually said that the trees near where the bodies were found had burns at the top of the trees. And these are tall, oh. old trees. There were burns at the top of them. And remember, Weird. there were like burns on some of the different yeah. bodies and yeah. on some of the clothes. Yeah. And radiation. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Crazy. Hmm. So years later, Ivanov said in an interview <sighs> that he was forced by the government to remove any references to anything that was UFO related from all of the investigation documents. Wow. He claims in that interview, which I'll link a transcript to it. Uh, I'll, I'll link a transcript that's translated into English. Sure. Uh, but you can also find it in other languages as well. But it's it's bonkers. You should read it. So anyways, he claims in this interview that there was multiple concerted efforts from Soviet government to cover up whatever happened to these people. By mm. all accounts, Ivanov was extremely dedicated and thorough in his investigation. And the fact that he was forced to remove several super important details from the investigation notes says that something's off here. Yeah. That's a super popular theory. It feeds the imagination and <laughs> quite <laughs> it's hard to explain. Yeah. If nothing else, what the heck right. is this? A lot of people say because Russia at the time was like anything that leans into anything supernatural, religious, mm. isn't allowed to be admitted as like right. scientific documentation or like legitimate documentation. 
but these were legitimate right. things that they saw. They couldn't you know? explain it away. Really strange. And <laughs> it's funny. You said, <laughs> you said when you first said aliens, yes, I literally thought of that guy on, <laughs> on that, on that, uh, on ancient aliens. I yeah. Think. On ancient aliens. Alien. <laughs> <laughs> classic i knew you would laugh right away yes I'm like, but we got we got to talk about it and when you like actually yeah. hear all the other information you're like what yeah well it's it's it, it, that, that's how crazy all of this is is you have to be willing to accept that there's a crazy explanation mm-hmm. like it's such a crazy environment to be looking at and the nature of the injuries was so wild They're like so how did this happen right we have to be okay with a really crazy alien theory. Yeah. <laughs> as crazy as that is. Yeah. Another popular theory is that the group was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they accidentally stumbled into some secret military testing. This could possibly explain some of the strange injuries, such as discolored skin that wasn't due to frostbite or putrefaction, the radiation on the clothing, broken mm. bones without any soft tissue damage, that kind of stuff. Yeah. The idea here is that either the military was testing, you know, some sort of nuclear, weapon and that the group was just kind of unfortunately caught in the crosshairs. Uh, the other theory is that same thing, except they got caught mm. seeing it. And so the government was like, let's take care of them. Let's yeah. deal with this. Now, wow. like we're actually going to test these weapons on actual people, which is really sad. Yeah. I hope, I hope that that's not what happened. That to them, would Cause be, that would be almost more terrifying than aliens. That is a level of depravity that I do not hope exists. Well, and it also seems pretty credible, too, because of all of the weird cover-ups. Yeah. Like the camera with the water damage and all of the other cameras that were used. I think there was five other cameras and paper that was not water damaged. Just this one camera, you know? Weird. Lots of things like that. The notebook that they refused to admit into evidence. There's just a lot of questionable behavior in how the investigation was handled at the highest levels. Right. Also, after the incident, the mountain was closed to the public for three whole years. Oh, wow. Which maybe that's not weird, but it's like, why would you close it if the investigation is complete? Yeah. And there's also people that live there, like the Monsi people live there. So I don't, I'm hoping that they didn't have any regulation on what they were able to do, like on their own territory. That would be messed up. I don't know for sure. That's not a statement. That's more of a question. Yeah. So the potential of a military test. Mm-hmm. So it begs the question, like how far off of their actual approved route were they? Cause if they were mm-hmm. super far away, um, then I guess like it's understandable that they would walk into something they weren't supposed to right. or get caught in the middle of something that unfortunately they weren't supposed to, they weren't intended to be there for if they were like, you know, just a little bit off. I don't know. It just seems so strange. And also if there's a military nuclear testing thing, I mean, there's gotta be a huge range for you to block off to do that. Even in the 1950s, they would have been like, yeah, definitely don't go on this entire mountain because there's going to be nuclear stuff happening. There's tribal people here and they're, is an expedition that's been approved through every possible channel. I would have a hard time believing the military wouldn't know about that if they were in fact there. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, it is pretty sketchy. Super sketchy. But I will say this does have a lot of supporters. This theory does, including Yuri Yudin. 
Mm. Yuri Yudin was the one who went back. Yeah. So he actually was used to help identify some of the items that they retrieved from the campsite since he would recognize them right. better than anybody else would. Right. He supported the theory of government weapons testing gone awry because while he was identifying items, among them were glasses and skis that did not belong to anybody in the group. And there was this like tattered piece of cloth that he claimed looked like a piece torn off of like a soldier's jacket or coat hmm. or uniform even that obviously didn't belong to anybody in the group. He also dropped this crazy bombshell that he claimed during his testimony that he saw documentation saying that the investigation into the incident began two weeks before the official investigation began at the campsite. Oh, Mm-hmm. The timeline of that is a little bit confusing. Uh, okay. Yeah. But if if they were already, if investigation notes had been made and they hadn't investigated the mountain yet, how would that be possible? Right. It's because they're sending people before they're supposed to be. Right. He believes that that was indicative of some level of military involvement. Yeah. Which, I mean, I mean, I can't really <laughs> fe- like come up with any ex- explanation better than that. Right. So Yuri Yudin lived the rest of his life with intense survivor's guilt. It's really sad. Mm. Uh, He actually held on to this little teddy bear that was a gift from Dubonina. And you can see pictures on that website of them like hugging as he was getting ready to go home when he was sick. It's really cute. They weren't like romantic, I don't think, but it's just really sweet. Yeah. He held on to that his whole life. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember how I told you that the group had made their own little newspaper when they were on their journey, the evening o Torton. Yes. Okay. So they had made an edition of it and they included all sorts of stuff. Like I told you about weather and science. It was really cute. They put like Dr. Kolevitov or whatever did this and it was cute. Yeah. But one thing that was not cute was one specific entry. The entry read from now on, we know that the snowmen exist. Oh, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> Giving you the gooseies tonight. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The thing with this that I have to disclaimer is that I think that they put that in the humor section. Okay. But even still. Oh, <laughs> maybe if they all if, had survived that expedition, that would have been funny. Yeah. But in light of everything else that we know, um, that freaks me There's out. Something. Yeah. Well, it's one of those, like, why would they make a joke like that is because they're, Seeing something and they're all like, ooh, that's weird, whatever, that's funny. They're all, you know, they're college kids. Right. Like, they're giggling and joking about whatever until it's no longer funny. Right. And then they go, oh, no. It and was a Yeti. Oh, snap. Yeah. 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 So there have been reported Yeti sightings in the area. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one because I think that there's not a ton of evidence to support this theory. But the theory that Yetis were involved does still have some supporters across the world so much so that the discovery channel made a documentary on it with their slam dunk piece of evidence being a blurry photo from the group's uh, cameras with a man like shaped being behind a tree that was found on one of the cameras. Oh, this can be written off pretty easily as one of the hikers in all of their gear. Sure. Pretty far away, but it was far enough away that people like, oh, it's a yeti. Makes it look spooky. Yeah, it makes it look spooky. So it's so, different than, is that is a Yeti different from Bigfoot? Is it the same thing, same family? I I think that's they're a different similar. episode, isn't it? That's a di- yeah, that's a different episode. I've got a lot of thoughts on that. Okay. that will, 
I would take a sidebar that would take us like 20 minutes if I went through all of my thoughts on it. (laughs) So this documentary was part of a series that Discovery did, sort of. Yeah. Do you remember the Mermaids and the Megalodon? Yes. Documentary? Yeah. Yeah. I think those were released like sort of around the same time. A lot of people are like, this is fake. This is not like a a reputable a reputable documentary, even though Discovery made it. Seems sure. more like creative fiction, you know, yeah. based on some possible realities. So the Monsi people actually have a name for the Yetis. They call them the Mank or the, oh. the Mank, Manky, I think. Okay. And they are very afraid of them. Like when they were helping in the expedition, they actually found the bodies. They all did believe that it had to have been the Mank that were responsible because they claimed that there were these big, violent... Yeah. Creatures. And they also claimed that they had lost a bunch of livestock a couple of weeks or a couple of months before this incident. And they believe that it had to have been the Yetis that killed their livestock. So worth including. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, is that any more outlandish sounding than aliens? Not really. No, not (laughs) really. Not really. There just isn't a ton of evidence. Yeah. You know, like would also a Yeti carry a torch and burn everybody and make them radioactive? Right. <laughs> and would they rip eyes and a mouth out? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Would they slam somebody over the head? Probably. You know, sure. the injuries could be caused by something very large and angry. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's wow. When you break it down like that, it's pretty reasonable. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to wrap up with a few natural cause theories. The first I'll tell you about is the infrasound phenomena. That is a fun word to pronounce. Infrasound, okay. Yeah, so essentially it's the opposite of ultrasound. It's this extremely low sound that generates a vibration and a frequency that we can't necessarily hear. Mm, Yeah. But it's been known to cause all sorts of weird problems in humans. In testing over the years, it's been revealed that infrasound can cause problems such as disturbed sleep and intense irrational dread in humans. Wow. Like a deep sense of panic. Is that is that the same sort of thing? Like elephants communicate with each other in really low tones that we can't hear. Is it the same sort of thing or not quite the same? I don't think it's to the same degree. Okay. Because this sounds like it is very... Very low. Overwhelming and very intense. Hmm. Okay. Versus like a, I don't know. That is a good question. Maybe look it up for a, for a fun fact. Yeah, that'd be a fun Because that actually fact. sounds like a fun fact. It does like, sound like. <laughs> elephants having their own secret language sounds yeah. pretty cute to me. Yeah, yeah They true. include that sometime. But okay, so the topography of that part of the Ural Mountain is kind of dome shaped. And so if the wind would blow like in the exact wrong way and with enough intensity, it could create a series of vortexes that in theory could generate infrasound. Wow. This is called a Carman vortex street. Never heard of that before. Yeah. Until I started looking at this, but infrasound can also be possibly an explanation behind the secret weapons testing theory. So think about that for a second. If you could figure out how to generate infrasound, you create a weapon with yeah. imperceptible and debilitating effects that you could use in war to subdue your enemies and they would just all panic and all go nuts. Yeah. You would probably get ahead of the game pretty easily, pretty easily yeah. and yeah. pretty, pretty fast. So that is one very popular theory that that had caused them that there had been like that. One of those vortexes that yeah. caused them all to just panic doesn't explain the injuries, but 
it does explain the potential of them all freaking out. Mm. And with some of the wounds being classified as self-inflicted. Right. You know, the some of the cuts. It wouldn't be a far reach to say maybe some of the burns were self-inflicted. Yeah. But well, once and- again, radiation, eyes rip. But then, then again, eyes ripped out, tongue ripped out. I, their people are panicking. Right. They're doing seeing it to, Doing it to themselves. Do, or doing it to each other. Yeah. Or so, doing it to each other. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Reasonable. It is reasonable. Yeah. They also believe that a super weird and incredibly terrifying natural force called gravity fluctuation could have caused this incident. I read about gravity fluctuation and could not breathe. It freaked me out so much. Really? Maybe I'm overreacting, but all right. So scientists believe that it's possible that the conditions on the slope of the mountain could cause gravity to decrease and that an extreme decrease in pressure could have actually lifted the hikers up while they were inside of the tent. So they're like floating in the tent, essentially. Many scientists believe that the hikers then panicked. They just grabbed whatever they could to slice themselves out of the tent and took off running as best as they could. If this decrease in pressure was sustained for even a few minutes, or if the pressure fluctuated from like really high to really low Mm -hmm. several times over the course of even just a few minutes, the hikers could have been lifted off the ground and then slammed back into the ground when the pressure returned to like normal levels. That could explain the weird breaks with no uh, soft tissue damage. Wow. Okay. Can you just for two seconds, think about how terrifying it is that gravity can just change its mind. (laughs) That is like one of the scariest things I've ever heard in my entire life. That's scarier than aliens to me. Just going to say it. Yeah. No gravity where there's supposed to be gravity is yes. so scary. It's like a Looney Maybe Tunes. I'm like Looney Tunes, they turn the gravity off <laughs> yeah. and, and back on just Except to walk around like funny. normal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, once again, it doesn't explain the radiation or the missing eyes and the ripped out tongue and things like that. But yeah, that kept me up for a minute. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fell down pretty hard in that rabbit hole. I looked around quite a bit and was like, what have I done in learning this? Right. Okay, so the last theory that I'm going to talk about is the slab avalanche theory. So actually, as recently as the beginning of 2022, scientists have been studying this theory. A pair of Swiss scientists named Alexander Puzrin and Johan Guam Guam or Guame made the trek up the Ural Mountains to see if a slab avalanche is possible in this area. So a lot of people have said the conditions in this specific spot aren't ideal for an avalanche. Like it's Hmm. not super likely that an avalanche could have caused it. So they wanted to test this. Sure. So they, Oh, sorry. Let me explain what a slab avalanche is really quick. It happens on a low angled mountain slope when high and fast moving snow crashes down kind of in like a sheet Mm. with even like a really small trigger, like hammering a tent into place. Right. Could cause a trigger potentially. It doesn't need a huge trigger for a slab avalanche to happen. So these guys actually made the trek up the mountains in similar conditions as the night of the incident, like bad weather, all that. Hmm. What they discovered is that the slope where Dyatlov and crew set up camp is in fact steep enough for a slab avalanche to occur. There's more to this since these guys spent years designing models that would demonstrate the conditions necessary for the slab avalanche to occur. And they also did make several treks up this mountainside to try and prove and test their theories. Hmm. I'll link an article so that you can read more about that in depth because I could take too much time up with that, but I'm not claiming to be smarter or, 
or more thoughtful than a bunch of seasoned scientists. But I do have a hard time believing that just because it's possible to have a slab avalanche, that that's what killed them. Right. Because it just, there's so many gaps in that. But, uh, well, it doesn't explain, I mean, for there to be a slab avalanche would mean that it would have to have happened all very quickly in an instant. And they, I, I just don't know that they would have all survived long enough to spread out like they did. There's that. Well, and if you think about the extent of their injuries, how would any of them have been able to claw themselves out of the snow? Like if you look at the photos, there's like a tiny dusting of snow over the bodies. It's not like they're covered in 20 feet of snow. In an avalanche. A slab avalanche is shallower. Like Mm. it's not a huge, crazy amount of snow, but it seems like there would be some indication that it wasn't just snow that had fallen from the sky on them. Cause that's, that's what it looks like. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Mm. I, there's also one thing that I wrote down that when they first set up camp, they had taken some photos and they took a picture of a ski pole or ski poles that they'd like stuck on the outside of the tent. Mm-hmm. And in the photos after the bodies had been found there, the ski pole was still there like in the same position. Hmm. And so if it was an avalanche, I feel like that would have moved. Yeah. Or like if you can take out something. nine bodies, you can take out a ski pole. Right. You know what I mean? Like the, the force would have had to have been right you know, enough to have been able to take all of them down. I feel like there just would have been more indications. The scientists do not claim that they've solved it. A mm-hmm. lot of people are like, yes, we've cracked the code. We figured it out. But the scientists just say like, Hey guys, We've just wanted to test this theory that it's plausible. Yeah. And there's a reason this is still open. Right. There's a reason why the case has not been closed, Hmm. but we've done what we can do to at least test this theory. So I mad respect for all the work they put in because going up, making that trek once would scare the crap out of me, let alone doing it several (laughs) times and dedicating years of your life to trying to figure this out. So mad respect to those guys. This is a story that has fascinated and terrified people all over the world for 60 plus years. We'll likely never know what actually happened. And that might be the most frustrating part of the whole story. So we probably will never actually know what really happened. But back in 2008, a group of people comprised of members of the Diet Law Foundation and of a university in the Ural region combed over all of the available evidence that they had. Hmm. What they concluded is that they think the most likely cause of the incident was secret military testing gone wrong and that the hikers' deaths were an unintended consequence of that testing. Wow. You can actually today go take a little walkabout in the Urals, go visit Diet Love Pass if you want to. Really? I would casually recommend against that, <laughs> personally. There have Maybe been, it's my uh, own convictions yeah. of, of not being like an avid hiker, but like if you're an avid hiker and that's your thing, I'm no judgment. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I would just be too freaked out of the potential of having my eyeballs yeah. taken and all of everybody speculating for 60 years about what happened to me. Right. The idea of that stresses me out enough that's to keep crazy. me away. Yeah. So that's it. That's what I have. I do want to hear. What do you think is the most likely of the theories that I presented? Like I said, there are tons more, right. but those are the most kind of talked about ones. Aliens. Well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, it's hard to say when a handful of just the ones that you shared 
do have some overlap, potential overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was Yetis and Aliens? <laughs> Yetis well, and shoot. Aliens. I'm with- working on another episode uh, with a name that I'm not going to say. But uh, let's just say that Aliens and Bigfoot go hand in hand there. Hmm. So if we have Aliens and Bigfoot and maybe the Russians have Aliens and Yeti. Yeah. And... The military. And the military. All to put together. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to all of the weird, crazy things, it's funny. I feel like the most, I feel like probably the most reasonable in my mind is the uh, the one where you're talking about the earth making vibrations and it causes the infrasound. people to, yeah, it causes people to go, go kind of crazy. Um, and, and I see that potentially being played out with military stuff like that seems to make the most sense to me. I don't totally understand how there would be fire across the top of trees with that. Right. But yeah, I mean, there's a, like you said, there's a reason this is a 60 year old mystery. Right. Pushing, pushing 65, 70. Um, and I, this is one that I have a hard time coming up with any, I'm usually pretty creative in like, <laughs> what if it was this, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was the once it was uh Yuri who survived. He went back. He went back. He's a murderer. <laughs> you know, like, Oh, don't say that. Uh, Yuri was so sweet. No, Yeah. I don't think he was, Good. but I'm glad you're not that, making that claim, uh, but I like, I can, I can get creative with that. But right. this one is just like the, this, the circumstances around all of their deaths just, it's already so bizarre that it's like, well, it may as well be aliens because it's crazy enough. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I feel about this story. Yeah. I think the frustrating thing for me when I'm combing through these theories is that there are a lot of them that seem actually pretty reasonable, but there's always like at least one or two holes in it. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't explain this or that yeah. aspect of the injuries or of the campsite or, yeah. or whatever. I think that that's the thing that's most frustrating is that none of them seem to fit perfectly and it could be a combination. Yeah. It could be none of those things. There could be something out there that we have no clue right. was going on at that time. Right. There could be weather phenomena we still haven't been able to accurately map yeah. and, and figure out and study that caused it. Right. It's very strange. I feel like the weather stuff explains the internal injuries really well, but it does not explain the eyes and the right. tongue. That's very really strange. And a lot of the like flesh wounds yeah. are c- kind of confusing. And the girl who had been beat in the side. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I could, I could say, I do wonder about like, instead of yetis or in lieu of yetis, uh, what if there's like a cannibal or a, a, a group of cannibals that live out there that they were like, these people are in our, in our turf. I know you've mm-hmm. already said that there's an indigenous people there. I'm not saying that there's people the- did actually accuse the Monzi people or oh. not accuse. I should say that's a little bit too strong, but that has been a theory that they were involved Yeah, because they have apparently like oil reserves on their territory. Mm. And so if they were trying to protect them, then whatever that theory falls apart so quickly because not only did they help them at several points in their journey, but they also helped aid in the investigation and were all noted as being like super upset when they saw the bodies. Right. And they all believed it was the mank. Right. Yeah. So like, that's why I didn't include that one. Cause I'm like this, this has actually no meat to it. It was just kind of insulting. Yeah. That's why I'm saying is is instead of it being 
those people. Right. What if there's another people group? I mean, or, it's a huge and a region. Smaller, a smaller people. I mean, that could be what the Mank really is. Like mm-hmm. it could be this smaller people group that they've never, they've just always stayed silent and quiet and hidden. And once someone got outside of a certain range of protection, oh, they're in our territory now. We're going right. to, we're going to take them and eat them. That just made me think of of the, you know, um, the wrong turn remake, like the costumes that the tribal people wore. (laughs) Yes. That were very like, that made them like larger Mm -hmm. and made them blend in with their environments. Oh man. And they ripped out everybody's eyes and tongues and threw them in the prison. Yes. It was the people from wrong turn. I figured it it out. That's there it is. That's the best theory. There it is. We've solved it. Yep. If you've never seen that movie, I'm sorry that we just maybe spoiled some of it for you, but it's a great movie. Well, it's anyway. been several years. Yeah. <laughs> Go watch it now. <laughs> We've given you a reason now. But yeah, that that is it. I would love to hear people's theories. I would love to hear if you think I got something way wrong, you can let me know. I'm okay with that. I did spend a lot of time on this. This is a story that I've always just been so fascinated by. And I tried to be as like, concise as I could be mm-hmm. with the extreme amount of information there actually is. Yeah. And with how much info there is, it's pretty nuts that we know that at least a solid chunk had been redacted yeah. or, or just not allowed to be investigated wow. further, you know? But yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. This was a fun one for me to dig into and I would love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah. With that, thanks for listening to the unusual very unsettling today. Mm-hmm. And you got unsavory. the goosebumps multiple I, times. I did. I did. Multiple times I, oh, that creeped me out. Oh, so thanks for listening to this one today. And if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please take a second to go and subscribe and leave a glowing five star review. And that'd be so uh, nice. We, we really love that. It helps other people find the podcast. And uh, it's also just nice for us to get to read nice little notes. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. Um, everything is at this one is a doozy Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I think Facebook's just this one's a doozy podcast. Yes. Um, you can find us on, on that there as well. And you can also email us at this one is a doozy at gmail.com. And uh, especially if you have a story of your own that you'd like to have us read for you or just share in general, if you have recommendations, requests, all that kind of stuff, we'd love to see that in the uh in the old gmail and uh, anything else you have to add for us here i think we covered it this was fun this was fun this was an intensive episode yes and uh hope you enjoyed a little bit a little bit longer a little bit more extended than usual but that's the good news of a new podcast is we can go a little long we're making our own rules with that said we will see you next week for another doozy bye bye thank you